Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 190. Thank you for tuning in, guys. Um, I've got a really exciting episode today. I only recorded it, it last week, and I've rushed it forward because I'm, 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 I'm really into it. I was sent a book called A Utopia for Realists and How We Get There by Rutger Bregman. And I get sent a lot of books for potential guests, and it's a tough one because I'm not someone that wants to have a guest on. A lot of podcasts do, but I don't want to have a guest on where I've read a chapter and I don't really know what the book's about. I kind of like having people on that I know about and I'm excited to talk to. So, But for each podcast, it's not easy to to read a whole book. And so I got, got sent this book and I said to the um, authors, look, if I get a chance, I'll read it and I'll, I'll let you know if it's a fit for the podcast. And I read the first three chapters I think on the bounce and emailed them immediately saying I definitely I want to talk to Rutger and I'll definitely have finished the book by the podcast um and yeah I loved it it's it's a great a great conversation I need to pre-warn you um I was quite excited so I think I think this is one of the best podcasts I've done but not because of me I think I'm a little bit rambly and disjointed in it and the reason for that is, as I was reading the book, I was taking these extensive notes, and I'm, I'm looking at my notes now, and there's pages and pages of notes, just because I was so excited about the stuff that he says in the book. And um, normally on the podcast, I just have bullet points, so I just was kept getting flustered of trying to go through these extensive, not bullet-pointed notes, and... Um, and getting it all wrong and confused. But Rutger was amazing, and it's an absolutely f- fascinating conversation. So that's a good thing. We go over loads of really interesting stuff, but what I like about it is we kind of only touch upon it, and you need to read the book to get the full information. And I th- I'll tell you why I think that's important. I'm, I've been podcasting for three years, over three years. I'm kind of an established podcaster, and even I feel that podcasts are a bit dangerous as well because um, I do it myself, but we listen to a podcast and then we don't go and do further research on it. And I don't know, it, it, it worries me a lot with social media in general. There's, there's, there's levels to all of it. People will read a headline and not read a whole article and then speak as if they know about that subject. People will read an article but not go and read the studies that that article is referencing and think they know about a subject people will listen to a podcast and not go and read up on the book and again will think that they know about a subject and I think that's a dangerous thing and I'm trying to be conscious of it when I'm doing podcasts that are on anything important and have quite easy to access further reading to urge you all to go and and do the further reading because this blew me away this book was amazing and Rooker quite amazingly at the end says you know, buy the book if you can, but the important part is that you read it. So that's not saying that you should steal it. <laughs> it's not at all. Um, again, you'll hear from the podcast that there's a belief that of of, of, of value to things and how things sh- sh- should work. But yeah, anyway, go out and buy Utopia for Realists by Rutger Bregman. It's easy to find. It's on Amazon. It's on in bookstores that are based in the UK and pay their taxes. Um, it's available all over the place. So do, if you enjoy the podcast, share it and spread the word and read the book. Um, I should mention now 
But this podcast, as ever, is brought to you by speechdevelopmentrecords.com. That's my little record label. And we've got tons of cool stuff in there. Uh, I I did a a video recently showing people how the drop-down menu works because a lot of people were coming to me thinking stuff was out of stock. And it's just, I've just got, I've released a lot of cool things over the years, so I can't have it all on the front page. So there's drop-down menus, and you can go to the Distraction Pieces podcast section, and you'll find T-shirts and mugs and all sorts. But if you go to the Scroobius Pip section, there's tons of stuff, the Speech Development Records section. There's tons of sections, and it is all 100% free to go and browse. So go and have a look around the shop, and if you enjoy it, support the podcast by buying some uh, some merch. Right, I'll get on with the podcast now. As I said, absolutely amazing one. Apologies if at any point I'm rambly or nonsensical, but it's because I was incredibly excited to talk to Rutger about all of this, because I think he's got some amazing ideas. So yeah, hope you enjoy the podcast. This is episode 190 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with Rutger Bregman. Set this or that, yeah. But with a podcast, is you don't really take an audio clip or fragment out of a podcast and say, "Oh, well, she said this or that." It kind of allows people to change the, their mind. And what yeah, I like about exactly. podcasts is I've had some with, again, some big names who've said some controversial stuff. But because I've not s- selected to take a little sound bite of that and push it to the media or whoever else, yeah, it never gets talked about. At, out of context and it shouldn't that's kind of the beauty of a podcast is you've got however long to give context and you can listen to it in context it doesn't have to be here's the soundbite that that's controversial in typical podcasting fashion i've started recording as we're mid-conversation it's quite meta because we were mid-conversation about the art of podcasting (laughs) starting halfway through is a is 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 such a classic trope of podcasters Mm -hmm. so it seems perfect um but I'm joined by a Rutger Bregman, and you're a podcaster yourself. You were saying I didn't know this. Yeah, and that's so. <laughs> yeah, and how is and uh, what drew you to that? Because one of the things we'll obviously uh, uh, talk about your book, which I've got in my uh-huh. bag. I'm gonna dr- draw that out now, because although I made extensive notes, there were some bits I enjoyed so much I've just folded the page over so I can <laughs> actually go to it. So it's called. A utopia for realists and how we can get there. Now, I got that out rather than ask you the title because it's translated from Dutch and been translated in many different languages. Mm-hmm. And the title was ch- has changed along the way, right, in translation. Has it always been this or has there been variations? Well, the, the original Dutch title is, <laughs> well, it would translate as free money for everyone. Yeah. Uh, so that yeah. refers to like the idea of a basic income which yeah. is one of the ideas in my book yeah but we felt that you know for the for the english edition we needed to have a, a bit broader title yeah and the, the really the main thing that i'm trying to convey in this book is that we need to return to utopian thinking yeah we need to be much more ambitious uh, and dreaming of a, a radically better world yeah and i think um quite early on you really nailed that in the it's in the realism of it all, the fact that I think at the moment, because of a social media a lot of time, or more of a, a greater awareness of what's going on all over the world, we get caught up in the fact that the world's in a terrible state and things are really bad. And one of the things you 
address quite early is life is good or better mm-hmm. at least is you know no, if it, things yeah, have exactly. improved a lot from, we've achieved a lot you yeah. know if someone from the middle ages would come here you know through a time machine and would, would be able to see you know modern day london or utrecht which yeah. is where i live it's a bit to the south of amsterdam i love utrecht. Um, it's, it's one of my f- favorite places to gig it's like a cleaner more <laughs> it's like they 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 thought about amsterdam before building it you know, like how Amsterdam yeah, kind of yeah. feels like it all happened. Well, and then I, they're people trying to always go to Amsterdam. Together, I never understand why tourists go to Amsterdam. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's better to go to nicer, yeah. cleaner. It's, it's the bicycle utopia of yeah, the world. So it p- really is. Some people have asked me, like, why don't, don't you write about urban design in your book about utopian thinking? Yeah. And uh, I never really thought about it. But now I understand because I already live in the yeah. utopian city of, yeah. of, of, of urban design. But anyway, um, if someone from the Middle Ages would come... Uh, to our time, to the cities that we live in, yeah. he or she would say, like, this is it. Yeah. This is what we have always dreamed of. Yeah. You are richer, you are healthier, you are smarter than ever. Uh, what are you complaining about? Yeah, exactly. Um, and a- again, it really highlighted, um, you, 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 you go into a lot of detail on how <laughs> the, uh, one of the easiest things in society now is to think that everything is out of reach or unachievable or mm-hmm. any great change it's kind of oh that's how things are mm-hmm. um but one of the things that i that hadn't occurred to me was that you kind of highlight that if you go through history and look at most r- writings or ideas of their idea of a utopian f- future mm-hmm. it's where we live now mm-hmm. it's what we're living in so most mm-hmm. of these things that at that time would have seemed unachievable are achievable and that i think is the absolute key at the start of this is saying no this is achievable it's not exactly. just some book of oh imagine uh, wouldn't it be lo-? It, it's not imagined by john lennon no it's, no. it's not a, a long version of imagined by john lennon it's saying no let's not let's just imagine it. let's actually do it yeah let's yeah. let's action this you know every single milestone of civilization that we are used to right now yeah, the end of slavery democracy equal rights for men and women the welfare state and the nhs you know all these things were utopian fantasies yeah. once and people fought for them, yeah. And people made them reality, so we can do that again. And and, and they seemed ludicrous at, at, at one time. They the, seemed the, completely ridiculous. Exactly. You know, new ideas they never start in the center. Yeah. So they never start with politicians yeah. or mainstream journalists. Uh, they always start at the fringes. Yeah. With people who are first dismissed as unrealistic, unreasonable, uh, impossible. Yeah. And then these ideas start moving toward the center, right? Yeah. And, and you need to connect with other people who have these crazy ideas as well. And I think that's what real politics is about. You know, politics with a capital P doesn't happen in, in Westminster. Yeah. It just happens when average people come together and talk about these new ideas. And yeah, and start to make them a reality. One of the things that you highlighted towards at the, at the end of the book was, um, was that pretty much every big change politically the first time it's put forward has been v- voted out and against in a vast mm-hmm. majority, mm-hmm. and then it's gradually come round. So that's how these things w- w- work. The fact that that the starting of the discussion on them mm-hmm. is the first step to achieving them. Exactly. It doesn't have to be, here's this idea, and everyone instantly goes, great, uh, let's do that then. Mm-hmm. That's, not, that's not how it works, but mm-hmm. it's the starting of these discussions and presenting them in in, in realistic and achievable ways that, that that brings them forward 
exactly. And it's also an argument for studying history. Yeah. So I think the biggest addiction in the world we live in right now is the news. Yeah. You know, more people are addicted to the news than there are people addicted to alcohol or drugs or video games or whatever. Yeah. Like almost all of us follow the news almost all of the time. Like, yeah. And the news is like the most misleading source of information that's out there. And even, it's always about exceptions, about yeah. things that go wrong, about corruption, about crises, about terrorism. So if you watch a lot of the news, at the end of the day, you know exactly how the world doesn't work. Yeah. And you'll be quite pessimistic about yeah. the state of the world, about human nature. You think that most people can't be trusted, that most people are selfish, etc., etc. Yeah. So what you need to do is zoom out. And that's where history helps. Yeah. So history can be quite an encouraging discipline. You, you zoom out and then you see, hey, maybe things aren't yeah. as bad as I think. That, it's a great point are. because it, it, even more so since the news has 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 found its way into social media reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's really easy to see. If you think about if anyone listening has ever tweeted about when their takeaway was messed up. The order was wrong on their takeaway, mm-hmm. which I've done myself. I've not tweeted about the 50 times previously that they got it right. I've tweeted about the one time it was, was a wrong. So mm-hmm. it's right that the news, particularly even more so through social media, it is. It's the exceptions. It's highlighting the one time it's wrong rather than all the ways it's right and mm-hmm. and correct. And that's that's not a great way to live our life no, or to, no. to, and to focus a, our attention. There's a lot of talk right now about you know the problem of fake news. Mm-hmm. And then, you know... I've got two ideas. Like the first thing as a historian, again, fake news is not new. Like every major war, you know, that the Americans started, it always starts with fake news. Like the Vietnam started with fake news, the Tonkin incidents. The the Gulf War started with fake news. The war in Iraq started with fake news. Weapons of mass destruction. It always starts with fake news. So that's not a new phenomenon. It's it's a very, very popular now. Exactly. Uh, It's found its hashtag. The other thing is that fake news is actually not the biggest problem. The biggest mm-hmm. problem is the real news. Yeah. The biggest problem is not, you know, these yeah. obscure websites that, that 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 are linked to on Facebook. The biggest problem is, is often just Newsnight or the yeah. BBC yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or, you know, who um, give you a kind of worldview or a, a view of the state of the world right now or talk about certain ideas or just try to safeguard the status quo. Yeah. I think that's often the real problem. Yeah, this, you know, focusing on fake news is just a distraction of the real problems with the real news. Yeah, completely, and that's that's kind of a never clearer illustrated. I'm um, in in a few weeks. I'm having uh, Patrice Acolours on, who's one of the starting f- founders of, of Black Lives Matter, who's mm-hmm. got a book wow. out about her, her her journey and her life, and that's a prime example of because in that you kind of you just here in her life you see that. Things haven't got worse in recent years. They've just got reported more, and therefore the focus is on that. And therefore, we're suddenly at this yeah. this worst point in human history. Yeah. It's like, no, we're just more aware of all the bad because of the news, because yeah. of social media. That's that's what's drawn. drawn you could to the even front. argue that there is a law in history that the more we worry about something, yeah, the better it is. You know, yeah, uh, we're doing actually yeah. at that specific subject. So if we worry more about racism. That's good news. And we should worry about it even more, that is, is my point. Completely. I but agree. we didn't worry about it or worried less about it, I don't know, in the, in the 60s or something yeah. like that. Or if you, you know, feminism or something like that. Yeah. We, we have so many debates about around, you know, after Me Too, for example. Yeah. That have opened my eyes. 
and uh, then you watch a series like, I don't know, Mad Men or something. Yeah. And then you realize, okay, <laughs> yeah. so they were not talking about that yeah. 50 years ago. Yeah. Uh, but we have made a lot of progress and we do worry about it more, but that's a good thing. That's so often it's a good thing. Worrying about something is a good sign. It's often a sign of progress. Yeah. I, I, I did a podcast uh, recently, a round table one, and it was on a specific subject of of sexual um abuse mm -hmm. in in the wrestling industry in the uk at the moment mm -hmm. and the point i made at the end of that was exactly that the fact that we're having this discussion shows what a good place the wrestling industry is in there's there's bad stuff going on in it but these things aren't new the fact that we're having the discussion about and mm -hmm. taking action to correct it mm -hmm. shows what a good place we're in it's the same with me too and 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 hollywood and the acting industry it's like yeah it seems like in 2017, the world was suddenly f full of monsters, and it w it wasn't suddenly full of monsters. We were just aware of the monsters, and we decided to start fighting the monsters. Absolutely, that's a good absolutely. thing. The resistance yeah. had begun, right? Yeah, and maybe it's again zooming out helps you here as well because obviously the news or like culture in general is dominated by the US, right? Yeah, yeah, and. If you look at so many of the the graphs that show the progress of the past couple of years, like the decline of child mortality, yeah. or you know we've got more, higher life expectancy and more kids go to school every day than than the last year, so there's so many hopeful signs of progress almost everywhere. Yeah, it's just that the US is this one exception. Yeah, where life expectancy is actually going down. Yeah, and that tends to dominate everything. So we tend to think, okay, so the US is is the same as you know all the other countries. But actually, America is the exception here. It's, it's the great and, exception. Uh, and I see that happening a lot. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm from Holland and uh, all these journalists, they all read American newspapers and then, then they tend to uh, look at things that are happening in our own society and say, oh, see, the same thing is happening. But in reality, it's not. Like, it's not, yeah. Think about something like inequality. Yeah. So inequality is on the rise in many countries, but not everywhere. Yeah. Like in Holland, it's stagnant. It's yeah. stable for the past 20, 30 years. Yeah. So somehow some societies are managing to do something about the rise of inequality and some societies actually going down. So nothing is inevitable here. Yeah. It just it depends on the kind of choices that we make as a society. So whenever someone tells you that, inequality is rising due to technology or globalization and that these are somehow I don't know, inevitable forces yeah. that you can't do anything about. It's all nonsense. It's not true. If some, it, sh sh surely we should be focusing on the places that are getting it right rather than focus on the exactly. places that are getting yeah. it hugely wrong. Yeah. Well, you can learn lessons from each other. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, I, I, I wonder the, 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 the statements you made that really drilled home the fact that we're in a better place and it's something that joe rogan talks a lot about on his podcast and mm -hmm. exactly that, that again l l almost every area or every c c community would be worse off if they were existing 100 years ago but one mm -hmm. of the things you you mentioned was that more people are suffering from obesity worldwide than from hunger mm -hmm. and that 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 really does just sum up that we're we're in a better place almost to almost to default almost to a problem almost too comfortable and mm -hmm. and that's where we can start to look and address all the all the all the all the places that that haven't been pulled exactly. into the forefront and this is the reason why i talk so much about poverty in mm. this book because we could have eradicated poverty already 40 years ago yeah right we've got the means we know how we can do it 
We've got the scientific evidence that something like a basic income works really, really well. We've just not been doing it yeah. uh, because of you know ideological reasons. It's not technological or economics or whatever. Um, but, you know, there's some kind of blockade in our head yeah. why, why we don't do it. And um, we so often, you know, if, if it's about poverty, we say, oh, we can't afford that and it, it won't work and blah, blah, blah. And, and then people on the left say, well, but we still need to care about the poor and we need to help them to make better decisions and blah, blah, blah. Um, what I think is really important is to emphasize that you know, something like eradicating poverty is an investment that pays for itself. Yeah. So even if you're very, very right wing, you still want to eradicate poverty. Yeah. It's just good for your wallet. Yeah. Right. If you don't have a heart, have a heart you still have a wallet. Healthcare costs go down. Crime goes down. Kids perform better in school. There are multiple studies, and I go over them all in the book, yeah. that show that it actually works. Yeah. It pays for itself. So there, there, you can use sort of business arguments in favor of something like this. Completely. And, and that was, was, was one of the most amazing things, to see the almost endless examples of when simply, as, as again, as you put it quite bluntly in the book, that the solution to people not having enough money is to give them more money. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's it not sounds, rocket science, isn't it? It sounds crazy. And again, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's great because since reading the book, I've, I've, book, I've discussed this with my dad and with other people. And again, you say that and everyone's like, yeah, but it's not as simple as that. And then you break down how it is as simple as that yeah. because the example of, I think it was the 12 homeless guys in London who mm-hmm. were estimated to be costing around, I think it was 400 thousand exactly yeah. pounds a year yeah. um in hospital police all sorts of other fees yeah. when an experiment was taken to just give them some some money and i can't remember how much it was yeah. it was around four well, grand or something it was 13 homeless guy you know? 13 homeless and, guys, and, yeah. and they were living in the streets for years and years some of them for more than 40 years and at wow. that point you know everything had been tried there was this was in 2009 by the way and what they did is they said uh, well We've tried everything. Let's try something crazy. Uh, let's just give them three thousand pounds yeah. and see what happens. Yeah. And you know, even at that organization, um, many people said, "Like this is a crazy idea. This is never going to work out. They'll probably waste it on drugs and alcohol." And that's the that's is- the most 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 common fear of you give it you give a load of money to a yeah. homeless person and they'll waste it. They're there for a reason. Exactly. And again, you people always. That. My experience is that people always say, "You know, you can trust me." So I'll make the right decisions, but you know other people not so much. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, you can give a basic income not to me, but no, not, not to other people but because human guy. beings are selfish and lazy, and yes. that's just human nature. Now, I think that what you need to do is to look at the scientific evidence. In this experiment, they found out that you know a year after the experiment, seven out of thirteen of the men had a roof above their head. Two more had applied for housing. Wow! And actually, uh, what they also find out is that the savings of this were much bigger, seven times as big as the cost of the experiment itself. Wow. So again, it makes financial sense. It pays for Even itself. if you're very right wing, you still want to, you know, go forward with policies like this. Yeah. This is what we find. I mean, this is just one example. In the book, I go over dozens of experiments where time and time again, they have the same results. You eradicate poverty. It pays for itself. Why? Well, maybe our assumptions about human nature are just that wrong. Yeah. Most people are nice. Most people want to make something of their lives. And if you're stuck in poverty, 
um, and just that context. We've got a lot of behavioral science in, in about this as well. I go over that in the book. Um, that shows that if you're in poverty, you can't focus on the future anymore. You yeah. can't think on the in the long term anymore. Yeah, so you're completely. only worried. Can only be worried about how will I manage this week or how will I even manage this today? Yeah. Um, now, if you get people out of that mindset, and again, the medicine is very simple. It's just cash. Yeah. Poverty is yeah, not a lack of character. <laughs> It's just a lack of cash. Yeah. And then you get an explosion of ambition and creativity, etc., etc. But the important thing is it needs to be unconditional. So no paternalistic welfare state, no government official saying like, you need to fill in this form. You need to prove that you're depressed enough, that you're sick enough, that you're really a hopeless case, that will never get anything done in your life. Not all that paternalism. Trust the people themselves like they know what's best for themselves Completely. just give them the means and if people could get past the paranoia that they're going to waste it or wherever else or again this the simple way of getting past that paranoia is knowing that it pays for itself because i think that's where so much of the paternal elements come in that they're like yeah. well we're helping them out but we don't want to waste this money and mm-hmm. things like that where it's like well no you're saving money by giving it i think that yeah. would make people more comfortable just go all right, we'll just have it. Well, then. I focus on if the, overall, focus it's the majority. Say, yeah. I mean, around the developed worlds, we've got more and more, more laws against fraud, benefit fraud, for example. Yeah. And then you look at the numbers, and it's almost always less than 1%. Yeah. So we create massive laws with huge implications for hundreds of thousands or millions of people, and it's just about the 1%. I think we should base our laws on the 99%, yeah. like on the vast majority. That is decent yeah, and, 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 and wants to make something of their lives. But again, I think that's that's really important. It's such a common thing for a society to, to have that paranoia. I was talking over Christmas to a family member, and again, I'm, a lot of people will joke that if you know it's going home at Christmas or whatever is when you you have to politely agree to, to racism or or any other mm-hmm. horrendous things. Yeah. I've not got that that kind of family, but. But even then, a relative of mine was saying, it was talking about food banks and was saying, do we I really need them? And are the people using them just kind of trying to rip people off or get something for free? And my argument was, no one's happy to be using a food bank. Do you know what I mean? If, nah, if, if you yeah. are cheating the system in some way, you probably need to. So let's allow that cheat of the system to go yeah, forward because yeah. it's well, not really a cheat is it it's it's such a weird a weird mentality to, to, to think that somebody's sitting there in a mansion thinking yeah. i'm gonna go and get some free beans it's like no exactly exactly and they're the, cheating the, the system because the system isn't working for them and they and they need that exactly and the crazy thing is that i mean if we want to talk about waste sure let's talk about waste yeah let's talk about the 37 percent of all british workers who say that their own job is absolutely meaningless yeah and i'm not talking about teachers yeah I'm not talking about garbage collectors yeah or or, or nurses you know these are consultants lawyers yeah. bankers you know people with beautiful linkedin profiles yeah who went to great universities oxford cambridge and now earn very very decent salaries yeah but the at the end of the day if you give them one beer or maybe two, they'll admit to you that their job is absolutely pointless. Yeah. Or worse. Yeah. Sometimes these jobs actually destroy wealth. You know, they 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 come up with destructive financial products. Yeah. And people are ripping the rest of the population off. Now that's the real problem. So if you want to talk about waste, sure, I, I want to talk about that about yeah. the thirty-seven percent of useless jobs, not about the one percent of benefit fraud. Yeah. You know, that that's going on in this and, country or elsewhere. And that's one. I mean. That leads nicely onto the 
again, it's not the the beautiful thing about your book was reading it. It felt both revolutionary and like this isn't new. Do you know mm. what I mean? It, it, it's like this is just stuff that we, sh- we should we should be expecting. And mm-hmm. and and the fifteen hour a working week is something that's been around for generations and generations, mm-hmm. but seems to have been f- forgotten. And that that kind of fits nicely in there because there's there's the fact and and the studies and the proof that working less hours makes you more productive yeah and gets more yeah. pr- productiveness and the fact that it's a very that, old capitalist insight once again so henry yeah. ford you know the great yes yes, yes mobile manufacturer he was one of the first business leaders who understood that you know it's it's more profitable to have your workers work for 40 hours than for 60 hours yeah because you know if you're tired uh all the time, then you're not going to be very productive anymore. And this is even more true right now. We live in a in an economy where most people work in the service sector, knowledge work, etc. And um, you know, you can't think for eight hours straight. Yeah. Often you can just do that for four or five, or may- maybe six hours a day. So it makes again, it makes financial sense to work less and less and less. And 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 the the, the studies that showed the uh, and I think it was it was Henry F- F- Ford anyway that said productivity went up to an, to such an extent that he could pay people who were working yeah, that was, six hours rather the uh-huh. same he was paying eight hours. Cause that so was it, Kellogg, actually. Oh, it was, it was so Kellogg, that's right. The guy Kellogg, from the, the, whole, yeah, the, the cornflakes, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And that was amazing because, again, yeah. he was split, splitting jobs and having that productivity go through the roof and being able to pay the, the same wage. And it made me instantly think of everyone – I mean, I've I've had it myself in old jobs, but the amount of people listening now who – cannot deny that for the last hour of every day they're clock watching and mm-hmm. waiting to see w- 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 when the day's over i'd say exactly. arguably for the last from lunchtime onwards mm-hmm. you're kind of cl- clock watching and waiting for the day to end yeah going on social media and whatever else imagine if you could just go home at that point yeah and someone else is there yeah. for those next four hours and the productivity goes through the roof and as i said it was was kellogg that was that found out it was, was such an improvement that he could pay the same wage so you could work exactly, less hours exactly. and earn the same. I mean, this is one of the central ideas in my book. In, in the end, it's all about freedom, yeah. right? If you give people the freedom to decide for themselves what to make of their lives, like that's the way to get more creativity, innovation, etc. Yeah. One of my favorite examples is actually from Britain, you know, from the from the 60s. Yeah. Why... What what was what was so magical? What was going on in Britain in the sixties that all these bands were popping up? What what was going on? You know, right, yeah. the Beatles, the Rolling Stones. Well, the answer is actually pretty simple. They were all on welfare, right? And b- back then, welfare was pretty much a basic income. You know, there were yeah. not many conditionalities or requirements. There were not all these thousands of forms. It was pretty easy to get welfare. So, if you want to get creativity if you want to get innovation what you need to do is to give 100 people the chance to do to waste their time and 99 of them will completely waste it and, and one will come up with something great yeah, yeah. that's what, how it works in science in music you know in writing it's it's the same everywhere yeah. there was even a there's even a band you know the great reggae band ub40 yeah you know why it's called ub40 you, oh it's the it's it's the re- is it the form you for signing on? And exactly yeah. the form that you used yeah. to get benefits. Yeah, and it's a great record band. I think it's such a perfect example. Of yeah, you need to give people the freedom to mess around. Yeah, right, because that's what innovation Completely. is about. Completely. I mean, I, 
I need to apologise in advance because I'm going to jump around tons because oh, I'm no excited problem. and I enjoy the book. <laughs> yeah. But it also means that people need to go and buy the book to get it all in actual intelligent order <laughs> rather than the, the, the random jumble <laughs> that, that I'm jumping around on. But you, you spoke of welfare and the thing that, that blew me away was uh, one of the central ideas. And again, this, the kind of s- s- central ideas that you've pushed for a long time are the basic a working wage and and shorter working weeks mm-hmm. essentially um and and the basic income the thing that blew me away was the simplicity of the fact that everyone sh- should get it mm-hmm. and that then means publicly it'll have more support because again even the nicest people are instantly more on board with something mm-hmm. if it inf- involves them if it influences them or benefits the, the, mm-hmm. them as well and just the beautiful point that I remember when I was a, t- a, t- a teenager, I had a girlfriend who was on benefits and was, was in a flat, living on her own, and she kept having to turn down jobs because if she got the job, yeah, she yeah. would be earning l- less than she was getting on benefits because she was under 18 or under yeah. 20 or something yeah. and living on her own and things like that. So the fact that you get the money regardless of if you're working or not, will help people to get work, to get work that they actually enjoy rather than work that's a means to an end. Um, you spoke just just now about the the kind of the mental state of scarcity, the mm-hmm. fact that if your focus is on putting food on the table, you might not perform well in an interview mm-hmm. or you might not perform well in, 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 in looking for the right kind of job and improving your mm-hmm. life. So once that worry is taken off the table – it increases the chances of everyone becoming a more productive and helpful member of society, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And and the reason that it's universal is that it completely removes the stigma. Yeah. Right. So now there's a big stigma on receiving benefits if yeah, everyone gets it. You know, it's it's just a right. Yeah. Instead of a favor. That's what we need to move towards. A society where a life without poverty is just normal. It's just a right. Like like the the right to the freedom of expression, yeah. or you know the freedom of association, um, this should be a com- an absolutely unconditional, unnegotiable right as well. Yeah, um, a floor in the income distribution, and you can't fall below that. Yeah, now that's the idea. Yeah, completely. And again, it's 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 weird. Part of the problem is the society that we've built. That, um, or part of the problem is where we've got to now. Mm-hmm. So we've got these things that we see as common sense or see as natural when, so it's, it's breaking them walls th- 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 down, I guess. And one mm-hmm. of them being that our desire should be to work mm-hmm. and everything sh- should be exactly, about work. Exactly. And one of the things yeah. you, you talk about a lot is the importance of leisure. And that was evident in speaking of the Beatles and all these other bands, but, but it's also about redefining what work is. Yeah. I mean, cause leisure is almost a thing of, sh- of shame now. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I have yeah, it. Yeah. Oh, oh, myself because I'm self-employed, and as I was saying before we started, the, uh, this book has been a massive help for me because I'm terrible at, f- at, at forcing myself to have leisure time. And because I had to read this for a podcast, because it, I started and it intrigued me, so we I, I spoke to the publicist and said I'd love to have this chat. I forced myself to read it, and and what I did with that was I went to a local seaside near me, a beach. And I mm-hmm. kind of, I walked, I sat down and read. I walked, I sat down and read. And I wouldn't have done that through choice as such. Because mm-hmm. I had to for work, it forced me to do it. And it made me realise that, wow, this was 
the best day of my week because I forced myself to have time off and to enjoy leisure and I didn't have shame about it. Mm-hmm. If Previously, if I spend a day in bed watching a TV series, I'm not telling anyone about it because no. I should be working. When no. That should be a positive thing. We but should that- be embracing taking in culture and, and enjoying le- a leisure to recharge. Sure, sure. But actually, if you look at the countries with the longest work week right now, yeah. right now, those are also the countries where people watch the most television yeah. and, you know, go the least to the theater and do the least volunteers work, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. If you get, look at the countries with the shortest working weeks, uh, people actually watch very little television or very little right. Netflix and devote much more time to their family, to their friends, you know, caring for the kids, caring for the elderly. Uh, doing volunteers work, yeah. know, all those kind of things uh, that I think make life really, really worthwhile. Um, so if we have the time, then we can handle the good life. Yeah, that's the point. And this also means that we need to redefine what work is. Yeah, uh, like I, I'm a writer. I, I work a lot with with other journalists, and what I see happening, uh, for example, is that you know journalists they love to do investigative journalism, right? That's yep. that's the thing that you went to journalism school for. So you do a lot of you do journalism and, and look at companies that you absolutely hate, uh, but you don't get paid for it. It's very hard to earn money with that. Yeah, yeah. So what do these journalists then do? Well, they do PR work for companies they hate. Yeah, uh, and you know, advertorials and blah blah. They earn lots of money with that. They use that money to do investigative journalism into exactly those kind of companies. Yeah. So that's what I call the circle of bullshit. Yeah. In modern yeah. capitalism, we finance the things that we think are really important with bullshit. Yeah. So again, what is work? When are you really, you know, being of value, contributing? A lot, a lot of really important work is unpaid. Yeah. Volunteers work again, caring for the kids, caring for the elderly doesn't contribute towards GDP, but yeah. it's obviously valuable. And there's a lot of paid work that's not valuable or worse, actually destructive. Yeah. Uh, and even though you know many bankers have very high salaries. That's more a reflection of the amount of value that they destroy than of what they create. Yeah. So again, I think the the point is often that we need to work less in order to do more. Yeah. To have more meaningful lives. It's not about sitting on the couch and doing nothing, even though that's all right. I mean, that's okay. Every every well. every every <laughs> I think rich life needs to have those moments as well. But actually, the big problem in a country like Britain uh, today is uh, I mean I, I mentioned this statistic of thirty seven percent of British workers think that their own job is useless. Yeah. Now just imagine the waste. Yeah. Millions and millions of people sitting in the office every day, sending emails to people they don't like, yeah. writing reports no one's ever going to read, browsing Facebook, all very smart people, you know? Yeah. Went to great universities. Imagine the waste. Imagine what we could do if we would move towards a society where these people could actually devote their talents to creating something meaningful. Completely, and and uh, and that's it. It's it's the redistribution of, of value on the more on 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 the important jo- uh, j- jobs. Because you're mm-hmm. completely right, and I think, I mean, I kind of I'm I made a note of n- nurses and teachers, farmers, police, but uh-huh. I think politicians as well. It's that th- these are all jobs that a lot of the greatest minds aren't drawn towards because mm-hmm. they're not something that they want to be involved with. Uh-huh. Yet they are drawn towards all sorts of, of, of e-companies yeah. now, essentially, because that's where, where tons of money yeah. is. But and this the wasn't always the technology case, is huge I mean, versus the developments in, in, in social yeah. movement. Yeah. But if, I mean, 40 years ago, if you, again, if you look at the US, Ivy League graduates, 
So the people who went to the best universities in the U.S., where did they go? Uh, what kind of companies did they right. go 40 years ago? Well, they often went and worked for the government or for universities or research organizations, you know, often very valuable work. Where do they go nowadays? Well, Wall Street, Silicon Valley. Yeah. There was someone who worked at Facebook uh, who said a couple of years ago, the best minds of my generation are thinking about how to make people click ads. Yeah. Now, the solution no, right. that we often give to that is, well, read a self-help book. Make a different decision. Yeah. Try to change your life as an individual. My point as a historian is that it doesn't work like that. Right. We need to get, create different kind of societies with different kind of cultures and different incentives. You can't fix it on your own. It's not going to – self-help books don't change the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't believe in that. Yeah, and it shouldn't – again, it's, it's – it's, I've, I've had the outlook myself of this job is a means to an end. I'm doing this – to get enough money to do to do what I love, but as you say, the why shouldn't we get money from doing the important jobs yeah, and yeah, things yeah. that we love? And yeah. one of the most beautiful examples you gave was the garbage strike in New uh -huh. York and yeah. how the, they went on strike in the in the seventies, I think it was at the end of the sixties. Yeah. End of the sixties, and it lasted what was it four days or? or five days or, yeah, or something just a week it was just <laughs> yeah. it, it lasted one week because yeah. the city needed them yeah and they buckled and this it, it was a mess everything was in absolute hell and then you know it it gave that value and mm -hmm. the fact that uh, 50 years later they're known as the heroes of new york and mm -hmm. and garbage men in new york earn a really good good wage it was it stated that after five years the payroll it can earn up to Seventy thousand pounds a year, which, mm -hmm. again, in this country, you kind of think of bin men. Oh, so no one wants that job. Mm -hmm. That's that's the lowest of the low. But it's something that's essential. Mm -hmm. If they go on strike, then there's genuine problems. Whereas, if someone who works on at Facebook yeah. go, goes on strike, or Google, or or the 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 the, the bankers strike you talk about in Ireland again I'm not just yeah. going to go through all the yeah, details yeah, yeah, of the yeah. book because there's stuff well, in obviously it. I mean it's all examples easiest, of how yeah. it didn't it it doesn't bring the world to a halt and it shows that all of these high paying jobs we can do without them uh -huh. and the low paying jobs nurses teachers are the ones that we can't do without if they go yeah. on strike there's yeah. genuine damage to our society we live in an economy that is absolutely completely upside down yeah. Yeah. So often it seems to be the case that the more you earn, the less valuable your job your job is, and the other way around. Yeah. It often seems seems to me like that. Yeah, that people with very important jobs with low wages that we say to them, "Well, but you get to have these meaningful jobs." So you yeah. Don't yeah. Need to. You get that. Don't expect yeah. a great wage as well. You get the the personal yeah. reward, but again, the reward it, in it, yourself it, rather than yeah. the financial. It's like, well, no, let's. But this can be different both. now. First, let's let's look at what hap happens when different kind of professions go on strike because yeah. that's obviously the easiest way to find out whether yeah. a job is valuable. I first thought, you know, I tried to look at doctors. I thought, you know, if doctors go on strike, that's probably terrible. Turns out that actually life expectancy goes up when doctors go on strike. You know, right. There's, <laughs> okay. There's uh, less dangerous interventions, I think, or yeah. procedures or whatever. So that's when I when I came up with the garbage collectors example. And indeed, I mean, this is just one example, New York, 1968. And after six days, it's an absolute, you know, state of the emergency has to be yeah. declared. Can't do without them. Uh, and this is the case every everywhere. Um, yeah. There have been many strikes of garbage collectors in Europe as well. And it turns out, you know, after a week, 
a city just has to surrender because yeah. we can't do it without them. Um, so it was at that point that I wondered, you know, has it ever happened throughout world history, maybe just once, that the bankers went on strike? Because that'd be a fascinating case, right, yeah, to look yeah, at. Yeah. So I started looking and researching and I started like 5,000 years ago with the invention of money. Uh, I thought it ha- maybe it, it happened sometime and I could find only one example. Right. In Ireland, 1970. Now, the bankers were angry that their wages were not keeping up with inflation. Right. Um, so they said, okay, you'll have it. We're going to stop working and then you'll see just how important we are. And all the experts, all the economists, you know, they all predicted disaster. This was supposed to be like a heart attack for the economy. So the strike started and nothing much happened, actually. Yeah. You know, it lasted for six months. So the, the, the garbage collector strike lasted six days. This was six months. And after that, the bankers came back and said, all right, all right, all right, we'll get back to work. And it just didn't work. So again, yeah, yeah it, if, if anything, it highlighted how unimportant and ir- irrelevant a, yeah. a job that is. And, in a and especially that is. when it comes to speculation, I think money is a great invention and we need a financial sector, you know, to facilitate sure. the trading between different kinds of professions and sectors. Yeah. We need that. But there's so much nonsense in there now. Yeah. There's so much bullshit. There's so much talent being wasted. And if you don't believe me, ask bankers, you know. I've had so many emails after writing this book from people working in the city. Yeah. Or bankers working in Amsterdam or on Wall Street. People e- emailing me like, you're damn right. Yeah. It's exactly like this. It's it's and again it's that it's 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 removing again you word it as 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 removing the dogma that all 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 jobs are meaningful. And mm-hmm. and again the 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 value of a job is in relation to the income yeah. of the yeah. the job at the moment. And it it made me think of the a thing that goes around a lot online particularly since the dawn of of, of reality TV is people saying Stop making stupid people famous. Now, mm-hmm. that always annoys me and angers me because it gives the illusion that fame is the ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, I think a lot of intelligent people wouldn't have any interest in being famous mm-hmm. or being on a reality show or whatever wow. else. Their goals are based on actual things that they achieve and yeah. can do rather than just fame. And again, it'll always be, oh, a surgeon sh- should be more famous than this reality TV person. It's like, no, they should be d- doing w- what they do amazingly. And that's their focus. They're not sitting there thinking, I wish I was more famous for, for my talent or a teacher or whoever else. Yeah. That's the, it, these things that we mark them as either wealth or fame sh- shouldn't be the, the, the pinnacle of achievement. Yeah, people I guess. want to live meaningful lives, right? Mm-hmm. And and there's no one who lies on his or her deathbed and thinks, oh, I wish I, uh, I don't know, I had seen more PowerPoints of colleagues or something, yeah, something yeah, like that. Or yeah. I wish I had earned more money. People always say the same things. Like, I wish I had spent more time with the people I really cared about. Yeah. Or I wish I had made a more contr- a meaningful contribution towards the world. Something like that. Yeah. I wish I had taken more risks. I wish I, I had done less of the things that people expected out of me and more of what I really wanted to do myself. Or what I thought I, you know, I, I could contribute. Yeah. Uh, it's always the same. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, we can move towards a society where that's much easier. Yeah. Again, I think basic income is really interesting here, and this is the most important and most overlooked effect of a basic income. Just imagine what would happen if you, for the first time, have the freedom to say no. Yeah. Now that is a privilege. 
reserved to the rich and the powerful nowadays. Yeah. But with a basic income, everyone can say no. You can say no to a job that you don't want to do. Yeah. Right? So you can, can go on strike all the time. It's yeah. a universal yeah. strike fund. Yeah. What will happen to the wages of the different professions? Well, obviously, the garbage collectors, the teachers, the nurses, they'll say, you know, I'm perfectly willing to continue doing this job. It's important, valuable work. But you'll have to pay me more. Yeah. So those wages will have to go up. And then all the people in the bullshit jobs, well, they're not going to get much extra bargaining power because they go on strike and no one cares. Yeah. So those wages will go down. So in the long run, if we introduce a basic income, we'll have a society where the wages much better reflect the social value of the different jobs yeah. that we do. We might move towards a society where the cleaners earn more than the bankers. Yeah. And to be honest, I'd like to live in that society. Yeah, completely. And uh, I mean, it's it, you speak about um, the right people being drawn to the right jobs. I think also if, if, if there was a universal basic income, we'd adjust how some jobs are done as well. And education is one that's key. I know I grew up in a town that's near London and we were, again, you're kind of, you're being prepped to go and get a job in the city, to go and get a job. You're learning, you're getting your grades because it will get you a better job. You're not mm -hmm. getting them because you'll learn something in the process of getting them grades. Mm -hmm. you, you'll get a better job. So it's about the adjustment of, of what we teach our children as well, yeah. values-wise. Again, another thing I hear people all the time is, why was I learning about pie in school? when they could have been teaching me about mortgages or whatever else. And I always kind of think, well, the point of school should be to push minds in directions that they might not th th thought of going in, even if you do end up never using mm -hmm. that. But you can worry about mortgages for the rest of your life. That's that's mm -hmm. going to happen. Mm -hmm. But in school, it should be where you're encouraged to, to push your mind in these directions that are maybe only usable if you go down a certain path. But if you go down mm -hmm. that path, it could be a really mm -hmm. v v valuable path. Mm -hmm. The people who are using Pi every day mm -hmm. aren't moaning about it online, about how they never learn it, because they're doing, it's, you know, it's pushed them in the direction mm -hmm. of maths or science or whatever else that's, that's mm -hmm. of more value. Well, you know, you've got these stories in the magazine sometimes, right? I, and I've received some of these stories from my readers uh, via email as well, is that people say, you know what, I... Um, I was 18, 19 years old, and I was wondering what I should study next, and I had some dreams. You know, I wanted to become a dancer or go in music or theater or whatever. Uh, but you know what? Uh, I decided to study business administration instead because you have to pay the bills, and my, 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 my mother or my, my father said, oh, you know what, you, you, you need to earn a living, right? Yeah. So um, I, I went and did that for 10, 20 years. And now I'm 40 years old or 45 years old, and I'm actually quite depressed. Uh, but I've earned a lot of money, uh, but I decided to quit my job, and now I've took up painting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've got these stories in the magazine yeah. sometimes. Yeah. And then it's always portrayed as something heroic. Yeah. Like, oh, wow, he or she is doing done. like what she really wants. Well, that's impressive. That's, that's a hero. Now, what I'm proposing is to say, well, that should be completely normal. That right? should be we should norm. live in a society yeah. where, where people do what they want all the time. Like, why would you waste 20 years of your life first yeah. and only then do what you actually want to do? Yeah. And this is, again, where, where basic income is a game changer. Because, you know, in a society with a basic income, and, and they'll, will, will again be kids having this conversation with their parents. 
and their parents will say, you know, you got to make sure that you earn enough money that you actually can can have a job. Yeah. And then they'll say, you know what, I've got a basic income that I can always fall back on. Yeah. That will that will change their decision. So I I think that people will will make in the long run very different decisions. Uh, completely. And, and and one of the kind of the fears of 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 people not having to get a job is mm-hmm. that as you said they'll f- fritter away their time. They'll watch TV all the time and things like that. And and one of the things that again I, I think I'm I'm fine with that because the example I came up with was when and, and Nikolai Gogol wrote uh, uh, The Nose, essentially inventing the novel and, and, and fictional uh, literature. It was seen as frivolous and throwaway. And now literature is a wonderful, r- r- rich thing that we take mm-hmm. in. So I think even the idea of people sitting and watching TV as frivolous is is discounting the value of stories, of characters, of mm-hmm. inspiration, of Absolutely. seeing stuff that makes you go, oh, wow, that excites me. In my mind, I want to write or I want to, to create in some way. So I think even on that negative side of everyone will be watching TV, it's like, well, they might turn over to something that inspires them and turn yeah. over to something that excites them. And that, that is the trigger to going and, and, and doing something slightly more valuable in society. Absolutely. So one of the other things that, um, again, there's, there's so much in there that I thought was, was just fantastic. Um, <laughs> Thing. But you talked a bit about about robots, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, and one of the strongest arguments for a shorter working week and a universal cl- global income is mm-hmm. the the, the robotisation of so many industries and mm-hmm. and workforces. So again, we're co- almost the. And again, it's 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 one that you also dismiss as well because. When I was trying to talk about this at the weekend, mm-hmm. I, was, I was saying, you know, it's kind of a jump before we're pushed because robots are going to mean that a mm-hmm. lot of, of jobs are gone. But as soon as I said that and my brother started to argue against it, I realised that you argue against that yourself in here. So I'd completely just, just got it mm-hmm. on the wrong place. But it is that, that jobs can be done to a great standard with less need for humans to be there mm-hmm. and the money isn't going to have dropped out. But I love the... Um, um, economist, a, a, a joke you mentioned in there, yeah. or the that? joke oh. that, um, or, or when he's saying oh, that in yeah, in yeah. in the future, businesses will have two employees, a man and a dog. The man's job is to feed the dog, and the dog's job is to stop the man from touching the machines. <laughs> yeah. um, and again, I love that because it means that the same amount of productivity can happen with less man hours being put into it. Therefore, we can viably have a shorter working week yeah. and not have any negative effect on economy or yeah. income or anything like that, yeah. you know? So that's kind of, it's, it's an exciting thing rather than the fear of we're all going to uh, lose our jobs to robot. Yeah. Again, you give tons of examples throughout history that, that these advances produce more jobs mm-hmm. and make more d- a demand. Again, the, the Henry Ford thing of um, the more time off people have, the more they need, to buy cars from mm-hmm. me to drive everywhere and go and have this leisure that that the more leisure time we have the more the economy thrives rather than mm-hmm. drops yeah and again let's let's zoom out a little bit i mean 200 years ago in almost every single country on earth 90 percent of the labor force was working on farms yeah. and agriculture yeah most of those jobs those jobs are gone right now it's just nowadays it's just one or maybe two percent of all people work in agriculture so do we have mass unemployment no 
came up with new jobs. Yeah. So first came the factory jobs. Most of them have been automated now as well. And nowadays, like two-thirds or three-quarters of all people work in the service sector. So automation is a is a phenomenon. We've been doing it for quite a long time, and it's one of the main drivers of progress. Yeah. So the robots should be our friends. Yeah. The question is just who owns the robots and, and who benefits. Yeah. And I think we should make it an inclusive yeah. kind of progress. That's... That's the point. Yeah, now, it makes sense. If more money is going to be m- m- made, it should it'd be great if it could be made for everyone rather than simply for the exactly. owners of the factory or whatever. Exactly. You know? And here's where it, where it gets interesting. So in the 1960s, there were a lot of journalists, you know, from publications like you know Wired, like publication tech yeah. journalists, and 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 trend watchers who all predicted that we would be working less and less and less. They said that the main challenge of the future was going to be boredom. All the economists, all the philosophers, all the sociologists agreed on this. Yeah. Uh, that we would be working maybe just five or ten hours a week yeah. in 2020 or 2030. Now, that didn't really work out. So the question is again, why? I mean, has the technological progress been disappointing? Well, no, not really, actually. I mean, productivity growth has been all right. Economic growth has been all right. What has happened is that we have stick to this ideology of work, that we keep on inventing new jobs that don't need to exist. Yeah. I mean, 200 years ago, 90% of the, of the population was working in agriculture, but all those jobs were valuable. Yeah. I mean, they were not very efficient. A robot yeah. is now doing more work than 200,000 people were doing back then. Yeah, of course. Uh, but, you know, it was all valuable. Nowadays, we've got way less people in agriculture and factories, and we've got lots of people in the service sector, in the offices, you know, all those jobs that we just talked about. So we haven't realized that we need to update our ideas. Yeah. What we are basically doing, we are working with 21st century hardware on 19th century software. Right. You know, that's that's what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we need to update these ideas, update our definition of what work is. We can now afford to. Yeah, you know, the yeah. The te- technology makes it possible. Yeah, that's great. Again, it's... it's it- it's reverse in that the fact that people have a fear of it's 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 bizarre to think when you word it is people have a fear that that robots will give us more time mm-hmm. to sit around yeah. and do stuff. It's like that shouldn't be a fear. That was previously the dream. <laughs> That's the point. Yeah. And then it becomes the fear of oh my god, I'm gonna have a four day weekend. Yeah. Yeah. How well, terrifying. I mean, is that no <laughs> It's a legitimate fear if people say like okay, right, in the short term I'm losing my job. Yeah. And I'm not benefiting of this yeah. invention. It's just some rich guy yeah. somewhere else that's benefiting. And so that's, that's where the, the legitimate fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is the reason why. Um, I mean, automation is just another argument, basically, for uh, giving everyone a dividend of progress. Yeah. Which is absolutely unconditional. Yeah. So often we think about redistribution or welfare in terms of um, something that you, you know, you need to earn or something. Yeah. Now. If we think about where our wealth comes from, yeah. why why am I relatively rich? Why are you relatively rich, historically speaking? Yeah. It's not because of our talents, you know? No. I think you're a great podcaster, but sorry. Yeah. It's not yeah. because no, of that. It's, it's just you were just very lucky to yeah. live it in the beginning of the, the 21st century. It's not because of my book or anything. It's just we are incredibly lucky to live with all these great institutions, technologies, yeah. even the, the languages, all these, all these inventions that were given to us by our forefathers. Yeah. So the richer we become, the less wealth we actually create ourselves. You know, in the 18th yeah. or 17th century, people could still say, like, I work for that. Yeah. Nowadays, that's very 
very hard to say because most of what we have is just a gift from the past. Now, what do you do with a gift? I think that the right thing to do with a gift is to share it equally. Yeah, right. Completely, yeah. To give everyone an equal part of the pie. And yeah. that's the dividend. That's the basic income. Yeah. So it's not traditional horizontal redistribution. It's not, you know, I'm taking something from you and giving it to someone else. It's just at the start of the, of the race or at the start of our lives, we get an equal share of what has been given to us by our forefathers. Yeah. That's basic income. It's yeah. just justice. It's the right thing to do. And one of the other things that you touch upon, um, which, again, I was just... I was reading and sh- sh- shaking my head in vigorous agreement. Um, is is further than that? Not just the time that we were born, but the bit of land that we happen to have been born on, and how borders are one of the greatest restrictions of 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 fighting poverty, of making the world b- 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 better for literally all of us. Mm-hmm. And again, it is kind of it was crazy because again, anything you've been born to accept is is the norm it's 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 common sense i think one of the biggest problems in society is Mm -hmm. is common sense because so much it means we don't question stuff it gives us a a right yeah it gives us a right to say oh it's common sense rather than to question it and go why it's just common sense don't exactly this is my this is my task as a writer yeah to redefine common sense yeah to show people that you know the things that we think are normal nowadays were not normal in the past yeah like borders for example very very recent invention nation states that hardly existed at the beginning of the 19th century yeah so these are very recent and they're not inevitable yeah and then most of the objections we have against diversity and tolerance which are very fashionable these days even among the left if you look at the scientific evidence it often just does not hold up yeah for example, stuff people worry about, oh, they're all criminals. Oh, they're all terrorists. Oh, they're all lazy. Yeah. And they're all on benefits. Yeah. And they take our jobs at the same time. Yeah. Well, again, if you just go over the, the evidence, and I do that in the book, I look at hundreds of studies and meta-analysis, you know that, yeah. that, t- that look at uh, more studies at once. And time and time again, it's just not true. Yeah. It's just not true. Openness and tolerance can work, and, and there again, are there are a huge amount of examples from history of it's it's especially the countries that manage to attract the talent from out, around the globe. Those countries prosper in the end, yeah. And the countries that become fearful, you know, start looking inward, become unsure of their own, unsure of their own identities, even mm-hmm. like what's happening in Britain nowadays. Yeah. Well, that's often not a good sign. No, in in. In the in the long run, all you're doing is is restricting yourself and being yeah. at, at 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 the back of the race. Yeah. And and this is one of the sections I literally I folded over because I was like I can't even make n- notes because there's there's so much. But talking about the falsifying of, of fallacies and you 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 go into again with historical examples of they're all terrorists, they're all criminals. As you said, they'll undermine our social co- cohesion. Yeah. They'll take our jobs. Cheap immigrant labor will force wages down they're too lazy to work and they'll never go back all of those are discussed and proved to be absolutely ridiculous and mm-hmm. the thing that, that, that blew me away was opening up the realization that the borders are open to trade and are open to almost everything other than yes. humans iphones yeah. ideas completely you know, Skype, the, again, everything fl- goes you, around yeah lot, you break yeah. down the iphone i'm reading my notes off of where all the different parts of that are made and where the, t- the technology yeah. was made all of that is open but the bits where humans move around aren't and it is comparable to apartheid and stuff like that because it's mm-hmm. it's it's saying 
you've got to stay there because of your your race or your your nationality or mm-hmm. or whatever else and that's crazy again yeah. it's it's a harder one for british people i think sometimes to to get around because we live on an island mm-hmm. so it's that simple thing but from touring as a musician and going around europe and realizing that i'm just driving from this i drove through three countries in one day today it was that yeah. simple it wasn't yeah. some big deal because we're this little island we get it in our but head. Europe, has Europe, to be protected. Has to be. It's like, I mean, continental Europe space. has become an island as well. I mean, yeah. people are drowning daily in yeah. the in the sea between Africa and and and, and Greece and Italy, yeah. etc. So, and it's just uh, it's it's more than a tra- tragedy. It's uh, it's an atro- atrocity because it doesn't have to be this way. We know, for example, that the higher the walls, you know, the the higher you build your walls, the more illegal immigrants you get. Yeah. The reason is simple. People still come. They still find a way to come to your country, but they don't leave anymore because it was such a harsh journey that yeah. they don't leave anymore. Mexico, the US. In the 1960s, there were hundreds of thousands immigrants from Mexico to the US who, who eagerly, illegally went there and worked, you know, contributed a lot yeah. to the American society. 80% of them went back. Then in the 1980s, they started to militarize the border. So it became much harder to go from... Mexico to the US. Yeah. Still hundreds of thousands of Mexicans made the journey. But nowadays only fifteen to twenty percent go back. Yeah. So it's completely counterproductive. Exactly the same thing is happening in Europe. Yeah. So it's it's so irrational. All these people who are in favor of less illegal immigrants, they should also be in favor of fewer border controls. Yeah. Yeah. Because again again that's that that is that was was one bit, particularly the Mexico example, that hadn't crossed my mind at all. But when there is freedom of movement, there's freedom of movement. There's not there's not a battle to get there, and then yeah. you're scared to go home and visit your family because you'll you, yeah. you won't get back over. It causes people to yeah. yeah to stay in one place. Yeah, and and people often just want to go back. You know, they yeah. they want to use their time abroad to earn money for their families, and then go back because. You know, we're creatures that are attached to our heritage and to our mm. cultures, etc., etc. And that's all right. I think that's a good thing. But then you need to create breathing borders, you know, that make it easy yeah. to go back. Yeah. But what we often say is, okay, so you, it's a very harsh journey. And then you get there and we make it very hard for you to stay here. And I then once you, uh, you've lived long enough somewhere, we say, okay, now you got to choose. You stay here forever or yeah. uh, if, you, if you leave now, you'll never get back in. Well, obviously, that's behavior, say, right? Yeah, pretty bizarre, yeah. <laughs> and then we think, oh, it's weird that people behave like this. And then the other thing, obviously, uh, which is, and we've done this in Holland, we've done this in, in, in many other, other countries, is people come as refugees or as economic migrants or whatever, yeah. and we lock them up. Mm-hmm. We just lock them up for years and years and years, and they're not allowed to work. They they the, get a bit of access to education. That's the and then we're the surprised that they're depressed after a couple yeah. after a couple of years. We're surprised that they're sometimes a bit more likely to do a criminal act. Yeah, I mean we've been producing that. Yeah, I mean the system is designed to create that. I had um, a young lady on the podcast who was a, a refugee from the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh-huh. and she fled war. And again, I asked all sorts of questions like, "What made you choose England?" She's like. Well, when you're fleeing for your life, you don't choose anything. You're just fleeing. You kind of, it's not, oh, I've heard the benefits are good. So I want to, to yeah. be alive. And she came to this country and for, for, for seven years, 
she couldn't get refugee status. And exactly as she said, because she's living on the streets, she ended up breaking laws, ended yeah. up in prison, all sorts of other things. And she was in prison and almost, or tried to take her own life. And she was saved and that kind of got her help. She finally got refugee status after seven years and three years later she had a degree in biochemistry. Unbelievable. And again, again it's the imagine of, the waste. Imagine yeah, the waste. The seven years, like seven of, years of, of a brilliant person on, on you know, yeah, and, that's, and that is the difference. That's the exact example of the way we treated her for seven years literally made her a criminal. Yeah. The way we treated her for three years made her a hugely v- v- a valuable member of society. That's not t- two different people. No. That's not the argument of, oh, but some will come over and they'll be horrible and some will come over and they'll be good. That's the same person. No. And we've made one a criminal and one a hero. Yeah. That's our actions. That's not, again, yeah. that's not the, the, the argument of these evil immigrants. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's the way that we treat them that then creates these statistics and numbers yeah. and figures, which so, is so outrageous. Let me, so let me tell you what I worry about. What I think is happening is that, you know, politicians on the right or xenophobes has, have, have pushed the debate so far in the wrong direction is that people, even in the center or on the left, are starting to say things like, yeah, well, maybe that's that's a bit right. And, well, maybe divorce, diversity can't work. And maybe we'll have, you know, we should be afraid of civil war if, you yeah. know, people, if we become too diverse. So they've been moving in that direction. And that's what really worries me. Um, yeah. Margaret Thatcher was once asked, uh, what her biggest, biggest victory was. Yeah. And she said new labor. Yeah. You know, that she changed the opinions of the social Democrats and, and labor. Yeah. Um, so I think it's very hard to push in completely the, the other direction. And again, the scientific evidence is with us here. Yeah. If you look, for example, at something simple as intergroup contact theory, uh, if you bring different groups into contact, let them talk to each other, let them do things together. That works. Yeah. You know, again, throw your television out out of the window, meet people in real life, and they turn out to be quite nice. Yeah. They've done this, you know, in neighborhoods with, with where almost everyone was voting right-wing parties. And then they suddenly meet real refugees and they're like, oh, but these refugees are all right. Yeah. Well, the, the ones on the news are not, but these are not all right. Yeah, completely. So it's time and time again, it's, we need to be telling a completely different story, not some watered down story of what, the others are saying yeah. but a completely different story yeah and and frame it in a language of patriotism because you know I, i'm from holland and yeah. um, in the 17th century which was supposedly our golden age there were in a, in a country like or in a city like uh, amsterdam there were more than a hundred nationalities this is the pattern i see throughout history yeah it's always the places and the nations where that are able to attract the talent from around the globe that are most diverse those are the prosper in the end and that are that are able to construct a, a collective identity like the US. Like we're yeah. all Americans, Italians, English or Irish or, or whatever, but now we're all Americans. Yeah. Um, that's what works. And, yeah. and that's that's a very old recipe and we shouldn't forget about that. Yeah. And again, there's 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 two things that that come to mind from that. Number one, it's the illusion that that we need complete integration. Um, mm-hmm. I, I had I had it's Suad McHennett on the podcast, who's a journalist who's sat down with the heads of ISIS and all sorts of other um, terrorist organisations. And one of the things that she said was, we can live together in communities and hold our own identities mm-hmm. still. It's that exactly. thing of, oh, yeah. they, if they're coming over here, then they should, 
it should take the burqa off. Mm-hmm. Why? Like, what's why? What's the problem with that? Like, what's your issue? And again, it's that it's that fear that the way that she put it was: we should be able to m- mix with all these different cultures, enjoy the bits that we enjoy, and not engage in the bits that we don't enjoy. If you exactly, know what I mean, just exactly. just take the best parts, take the 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 food and, and and the fashion and the things that we enjoy, but not oh, I'm not I'm not into your religious part of it, so I'll leave now yeah. while you all do that religion bit. That should be okay, but again. Oh, we teen, tend to have this fear of, oh, how can we all agree on one way yeah, to live? Sure, we don't have yeah, to agree yeah. on one way and to I live. And I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not a cultural relativist. Yeah. I mean, this is a book about the history of ideas. Yeah. And I'm saying, like, we used to have very bad ideas about some things, yeah. like, I don't know, slavery, yeah. or, you know, you go to the Middle Ages and you're like, well, that culture was absolutely not yeah. equal or whatever to the culture we have right now. We've got a much better culture. Yeah, so yeah. I'm not saying all cultures are equal or just as good. Yeah, sure. Right? But yeah, in yeah. many ways, we can learn things from each other. Completely. Uh, and uh, But sure, I mean, there are some ideas are better than the others. Yeah. I mean, I like the societies where we where they actually care for the poor. That's, yeah. Those societies They're are superior good. to the ones that don't. Yeah, completely. <laughs> right? And, and uh, again, it, it's also true, I think, uh, we saw it in the UK with the rise of 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 Corbyn in 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 mm-hmm. Labour that I'm, I don't support or follow any p- p- a political party in this country mm-hmm. um, at at the moment. In fact, the closest I've come to was the Pirate Party in Holland, who mm-hmm. I thought had some amazing ideas and were very uh, progressive. But I've not seen anything in the UK that excites me. But the thing that sa- that saddened me was I saw an equal amount of people attacking Corbyn from Labour supporters and people against Labour. And it was exactly as you were saying. They were saying his ideas are unrealistic. Mm-hmm. And that's because of people brought up on, on new, yeah. new Labour, on everyone being in this middle thing of, oh, we can't stray too far because it's not realistic. It won't get elected. It can't work. Whereas, again, as you discuss in the book, the right haven't been scared of that. And it's kind of worked. Mm-hmm. The right have gone, here's our crazy ideas. And I think it was... At the Overton window you speak mm-hmm. about in there, yeah. where it's kind of what Trump and Boris Johnson and others are really good at is saying a crazy, unrealistic idea. And that might be unrealistic, but mm-hmm. then that makes other ideas seem more realistic in, in relation. Exactly. So even if there's a left idea that's so far from reality, it's positive because then it's at least it's pulling that yeah. window open of what yeah. could be acceptable. Well, this is the role that communism played for a long time in Europe. Yeah. So before the fall of the Berlin Wall, yeah. what the social democrats could say is, look, you need to accept our ideas. We need to have this strong welfare state because otherwise the communists will come and they'll have a revolution. Right. So what happened is that, well, the Berlin Wall f- fell. It was like, okay, so communism had lost democracy at one capitalism at one so there was no energy on the left anymore yeah there was no threat from the left anymore yeah uh, and then the social democrats also co-opted the ideas from the right so yeah since then it's been moving in the other direction so i'm not saying we should all become communist right now right yeah, yeah i yeah. mean that's that's a debate from the past yeah uh, but we do need to have our crazy ones yeah we do need to have those unreasonable unrealistic impossible people because they help us think. Yeah. And they help us to challenge what we have uh, come to accept as common sense. That's what sure. real politics is about. You know, it's about real ideas uh, that, that challenge the status quo. 
And 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 that's what I liked about your book because it had some out there ideas, but it had a realistic a ways on which mm-hmm. we can achieve them. I always remember reading um, J- John Ruskin unto the last, um, mm-hmm. and I loved his ideas, but I was saddened by the fact that we've already got to a point where they can't happen. His 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 idea that he wrote before we submitted to capitalism or before capitalism was a thing. One of the basic parts of his idea was, and I've, I've spoken about this, this once on the podcast and I didn't give, give the name of who it was, but one of his ideas was that we have set of values for everything. So for example, a lamp costs 10 pounds. That's how much a lamp costs. And that means we don't get any waste because we, there's no you can't afford to waste on producing a lamp. You only get good quality because if someone uh, makes a shit a quality l- a lamp, then then no one's going to buy it because lamps cost ten pounds. So why would you buy that poor quality, poorly made one when there's a good one f- f- for this price? And that was kind of all the way across, and it removed the idea again. Our obsession in society of finding a bargain. It's like no, there's no bargains. There's set prices for everything, and it's of good good value and we're happy to pay them because that's that's the set price and i'm butchering it all there but that was all wonderfully depressing to uh, to read because it felt like that would be a wonderful system that would work but we could never go back to that now because Mm -hmm. our our society is so focused on we need to get get bargains and we need to make money and we Mm -hmm. need to there's no there's no view of enough Mm -hmm. The, ter- the idea of enough has gone but from again, our, I'd say our this lives. But again, I'd say this is not inevitable. What I try to do in this book is to start off with what we already have. Yeah. Uh, and to think about, you know, how can we start experimenting tomorrow in yeah. a very practical sense to move towards a better society. So what we should, shouldn't do is to be too abstract or too philosophical yeah. about, oh, well, this would be a great world and have no idea about how we can, yeah. we can get there. Um that's the challenge. Now, if you think about something like advertising, yeah. well, if you look at the history of it, it turns out to be a very recent phenomenon. So it yeah. all took off in the 50s. And then if you look at international differences between countries, it turns out that con- some countries have quite strict laws that prohibit uh, advertising on buildings or mm-hmm. on uh, trucks or whatever. You could do that. And then if you look at those kind of societies, there's a lot less status competition. And yeah. people experience a lot less anxiety around, you know, buying lots of stuff they don't need to impress people they don't like. Yeah. So, again, it's not inevitable that there are a lot of, you know, hardly dressed women yeah. and, and hugely billboards yeah. on the streets that we live. It's a political decision. Yeah. And we can make different decisions. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the important thing is to realize is that you're not alone. That's really the most important thing, yeah. is, is to get together with other people because as collective you can, collectives, you can achieve something. Yeah. And, and actually, Britain is showing the way in that respect. If you look at uh, left-wing or, or progressive uh, political parties, however you want to call them, they're losing pretty much everywhere in Europe. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Social Democrats lost half their seats during the last elections in, right. in Holland. They were smashed in Norway. They were smashed in in, in Germany and France. They're losing everywhere. So it's pretty interesting that here in the UK, everyone first predicts that Corbyn will be a disaster. And then he performs better than any other Labour politician since 1946. Yeah. Turns out that all this time, the problem was not that Labour was uh, too radical. 
The problem was that it was not radical enough. Yeah, yeah. And now it came out with a manifesto and uh, a movement and a language of hope. And it turns out people are like, oh, wait, maybe things can be different. Yeah. Now, I think that actually it's not radical enough even yet. And, yeah, and I think I that agree. some of the ideas are too old. It feels like stepping into a time machine and going back to the 70s. Yeah. And I want to hear more about ideas like post-work and, and, and basic income, etc. Yeah. But it's it's... I think it's very exciting that um, someone who is first dismissed by the whole, by all mainstream journalists yeah. and politicians, and everyone says oh, that will never work out, and then something like that ha- happens. It's not an accident, you know. Yeah. We've seen it before in history, and that's it. I think that's the key: is where you, you you use history to show that these small wins are pushing in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's not just a case of oh, because the fact is. Corbyn didn't win, mm-hmm. you know, but, and th- or that'll be the argument of the right, but he made huge, huge progress. And, and again, made, the vote against exactly. slavery didn't win numerous no, times, no, no. and then it did win. But he made ideas thinkable yeah. that were not thinkable before. Yeah. You know, he's moved the whole spectrum of political discussion. What people always overestimate is the amount of change that can happen in the next two or three years. Yeah. But they always underestimate the amount of change that can happen in the next 10 or 20 years. Yeah. So you need to be in it for the for the long game, you know, yeah. the long term. Yeah. You need to have a little bit of patience. Completely. And again, the kind of the the, the you've now in the, in the the realization that there's more people like you that are thinking like this because one of the other arguments I've heard is but Corbyn, you know, he's not going to be around that long or whatever else but no, but doesn't he's shown matter. he's shown other people that you can be that far out. Oh, but it's it doesn't not matter about if he ever achieves anything more. Yeah. He's shown others that they don't have to try and copy Blair or try and copy whoever else. Yeah. They can try and either be themselves or copy Corbyn and go out and yeah. go further and further. Yeah. And but we we live important. in a culture that vastly overestimates the importance of individuals. Yeah, that's not true. I mean, I've written this book. Someone else could easily have written it. Yeah. I mean, these ideas were just in the air. Yeah. And I was just lucky enough to have a job, to have the opportunity to pluck them out of the air, to yeah. write it down. And now I'm the author that gets to talk about it, you know, in, yeah. in all, lots of countries. But these are not like my ideas. Basic income has been around for centuries. Yeah. And I'm building on the works of others, yeah. right? And that's okay. That's yeah. that's what progress is about. That's yeah. that's how it works. Yeah. And if Corbyn is gone, there will be other people. Yeah, so completely. that's it's really not about individuals. This is this is really the thing that this happens all the time. When I'm not sure how it's here, probably the same. But in Holland, every single time the Social Democrats lose an election, they say, "Yeah, it was because our political leader didn't didn't have charisma enough." Yeah, and that's that's their analysis every single time. Well, it's really not some HR problem. Yeah, the problems are with your ideas. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, the problem. yeah, 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 and and. Uh, uh, and that was one of the great examples of um, of Obama. And again, I know he was was very charismatic, but I remember the years before he got into power, there were so many pushes of celebrities pushing people to vote mm-hmm. and this and that. And what it took to vote was a politician that people l- liked the ideas of and liked what he was saying. It didn't take a load of celebrity videos saying, come and vote. Come on, let's get rid of Bush. It took a viable alternative rather than just a PR stunt, and that's that's kind of the the way forward. Mm-hmm. It's finding the right people to to be at that forefront and, and make those I steps. Agree. And I think that again, even though Bernie Sanders didn't make it, 
was also very, very exciting and encouraging. Huge. Because nowadays, I mean, talking about something like single payer in the US, you know, having yeah. a proper NHS-like healthcare system, it's suddenly a topic of discussion again. Yeah. Ten years ago, they would laugh at you. Like, oh, yeah. that's never going to happen. That's a European crazy dream. Um, also, basic income, uh, about, you know, empowering unions one, once again, uh, reducing inequality. All these things are finally talked about. And that's a good sign. Yeah, you know, it, because it always starts with these ideas, and it never starts in Washington, and never starts in West, Westminster. Yeah. It always starts on the fringes, but it can happen so quickly. Look at what's happening around basic income. Four years ago, when I first wrote about it, completely forgotten idea. Yeah, right. No government was considering it. No journalist was writing about it. I even pitched it at the at the newspaper I, I was working for back then, and they said, "Sorry, they said, sorry, you can't write about that because right. that's that's just some <laughs> historical topic yeah. that." Our readers are not interested in that. I moved to a different publication. They gave me the freedom to do whatever I want. Wrote my piece. It was my best piece ever. Wow. One of the first pieces about basic income. We translated it into English, and that came the basis for this book. Yeah. So um, I think that just shows you that ideas can be influential. And now it's just Finland is doing an experiment. Canada has announced a big experiment. Lots of people in Silicon Valley are interested. Kenya is doing a big experiment. Scotland has announced plans uh, around basic income. Yeah. So and that happens in just four years. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And again, I'll wrap things up now as as as, as we've been going for an hour and yeah. and twenty minutes. But there's so many examples in the book of when experiments have been done that have been forgotten. The one in Canada was just fascinating. That it was almost lost to history until the files were found, essentially. Mm-hmm. And someone could go over and go, oh, no, this was working. Yeah. It's something that happened and got benched because of changes in in, in, in government and yeah. whatever else. Oh, no, that was working. So yeah. there's tons of examples in there. So I, I recommend, obviously, we've skimmed the surface here, but I recommend people go out and, and read a, a Utopia for Realists and how we get there um, and watch your TED Talk as well, which is 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 online and, and, and thoroughly enjoyable. Where can people find you and follow what you're doing? You, you, you're on on Twitter and social media, right? Well, most of the pieces I write are in Dutch. Yeah. So if your Dutch is good, then yeah. <laughs> you can go to the website of The Correspondent, which is the medium I write for. Yeah. And then, you know, the Holland is basically my test country. So yeah. I test my ideas on a Dutch audience. Perfect. And then I make them into a book, and that will, you know, that I'm working on that yeah. right now, my next book. Um, so, so I'm more of a book writer than of uh, tweeting two, and, and Facebook and blah, blah, blah. Two of my top ten guests downloads wise from last year were Ancilla van der Leest of the Pirate Party and Wim Hof um, of being a crazy Dutch man so hopefully we've mm. built a, a Dutch following from that who can go and read directly from your website and the rest mm, of us will cool. have to wait um, until you know, the next it? next book is, is written and translated <laughs> oh well it's it's already uh, the next book is already bought by Bloomsbury so Perfect. they're going to translate it anyway Perfect. Um, but, uh, you know, with this book, I just like to get the word out. Yeah. So uh, if people can buy it, buy it. Otherwise, just nick it or steal it or share it with someone. Find it and read it in some <laughs> yeah. way. I'd, you can probably find it somewhere. I mean, I've got my copy here and I can see another copy on the shelf there. So I'll happily give someone a copy if they hit me up if, if, you, if you can't come to it, make ends meet on it. Th- thank you very much for taking the time. It's been Thanks a pleasure so to chat and uh, it was great to read. Thank you very much. Thanks. Been listening to Scrooge Pits, the Scratch Pieces. There we go. 
That was episode 190 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with Rutger Bregman. Um, I love that chat. I thought that was, that was really good fun. I love at the end that he kind of talks about how important it is to simply read the book. Ideally, if you can afford to, purchase it. But other than that, just getting your hands on it and reading it in any way you can, because the important thing is the message uh, being spread. And that was cool because... I realised that quite early on, where you often have people on with books, you, they don't want to reveal too much. He was like, I'll talk about anything. Like, as you would have noticed, there's a few points where I was like, I won't go into full detail. And then he went into full detail because it's not about him making money and, and selling a book. O- obviously, the selling of the book helps because that makes books like this more viable to publishers and, you know, as 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 viable commercial entities to get pushed out there and advertised and put on podcasts but the important part is the message so yeah that was cool anyway i'm going to leave you to it and i will see you all next week for another distraction pieces podcast thank you for all the love i recently for the don let's episode last week the florence Pugh episode the the brit wrestling special tons of, of really good um episodes the gus khan one paloma faith Elena Heady, and that's all of them from this year. But they've been great. So thank you all for tuning in, and I'll be back. Um, oh, I should also mention, actually, in that podcast, I talked about um, a couple of different podcasts. Let me go through my list, and I'll find the podcast numbers for you. Um, I mean, I could pause my recording to do this, but I'm not going to. So I talked about the uh, Refugee Special, didn't I, which was with um an amazing a young lady called Ramel and that was absolutely astounding the story that she had and the yeah the story that she had to tell was quite was quite amazing let me find it hang on I've got on my phone I've got a folder of all the polaroids that I put on um on the thing here we go so episode number 42 is refugee week special with Ramel so I recommend you check that 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 out. I had a, another one a little while after that. Um, that was here we go, episode number eighty six, safe housing for women special with Mira, and that was a story of a, an amazing young lady who was brought to this country in in sex trafficking, and it's a painful, it's a hard story to listen to, but it's a very powerful one. I'd recommend the Jason Reed episode number eighty one because we talk about bold ideas and then being developed and pushed through he he's someone i talked about the steps being taken for the legalization of drugs in the uk and around the world and the other one i mentioned was my podcast with suad mckennett which was episode number 169 so go and check that out she, she, she's a journalist um who s- sat down with the heads of isis and all sorts of other people and had some amazing insights on all of that um there's one more i wanted to recommend yes so episode 135 part part one and two were both my homelessness special um and it was with a charity called mustard tree and a charity called haircuts for the homeless so check them out if you get a chance as well if you want some further listening but most importantly Go and get your further reading with Utopia for Realists. So that's a long outro. I'll see you all next week. Ta-ta.